chapter 6. We will be looking at verses 3 through 10 this morning. If you're using the blue ESV Bibles in the seat backs in front of you, you can find our text on page 993. The title of our sermon this morning is Stalking Horse Religion. And the key words for our worshipers in training are craving, contentment, and destruction. In part one of John Bunyan's Allegory of the Christian Life, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Christian is met by a man um, who at first resists sharing his name with Christian. Well, eventually, however, Christian is able to discern the man's name. The man's name is Mr. Buy-ins. Though Mr. Buy-ins says he does not deserve such a name, it's been hoisted upon him by others. Well, in their initial conversation, Christian does invite Mr. Buy-ins to accompany him and his traveling companion, um, hopeful, with this condition. He says, If you will go with us, you must go against wind and tide, the which I perceive is against your opinion. You must also own religion in his rags as well as when in his silver slippers, and stand by him too when bound in irons as well as when he walks the streets with applause. And despite his claim to the contrary, Mr. Byans makes it evident very quickly that he is, in fact, aptly named. For he indeed is unwilling to walk with them on this condition. It would be far too unpleasant. And so Christian and and, uh, hopeful speed ahead. But behind them, Mr. Byans is joined by his former acquaintances, Mr.'s Hold the World, Money Love, and Save All, who with Byans had been taught when they were children by uh, Mr. Gripe Love. They were taught what Bunyan calls the art of getting, either by violence, cozenages, flattery, lying, or by putting on a guise of religion. And it is this last phrase that is of most interest to us today. The guise of religion. You see, in this story, these four men overtake Christian and hopeful, and they discuss the merits of their respective views. And Christian concludes that these men have made religion a stalking horse. If you're not familiar with the term... A stalking horse, uh, apparently, is a hunting term. I'm not a hunter, so I don't, I don't know. But, uh, well, I didn't, I didn't know. But apparently, it's, it's a term used in hunting, right? Birds, I guess, will flee when a human approaches. But they often tolerate the presence of other animals, such as horses or cattle. Hunters would therefore slowly approach their prey, walking alongside their horses, uh, sometimes even using fake horses, keeping their upper bodies out of sight, 
until the flock was within firing range. Animals trained for this purpose were called stalking horses. So what is stalking horse religion? Well, in this case, it's a system of doctrine that operates under the guise of religion for the art of getting. Religion is not an end in itself, but it is a means to an end of some type of financial gain often, as we will uh, see in our passage this morning. And so that, that brings us to 1 Timothy 6, verses 3-10. through 10. So far in the letter, Paul has written to Timothy about the need for the church to teach sound doctrine, to prioritize prayer, and to insist on godly leadership, which was made up of men who loved the church. You see, Timothy was combating false teachers that had arisen up from even within the eldership there at the church in Ephesus. And so Paul says, you must fight for these things. And it's not going to be easy work, Timothy. And so to Timothy, in chapter 4, he says, you, you need to, especially in light of your age and in light of your particular struggles, you need to set an example for the believers. And you need to strive with diligence for godliness. Then moving on into chapter 5, Paul had discussed a variety of issues regarding several groups within the church. It seems that widows in Timothy's day here were not being properly cared for. Elders were not being properly respected nor properly admonished. And bondservants, as we saw last week, were not properly respecting their masters. Even believing masters, they assumed that because they were brothers in Christ that they would let them slack off. Well, so now, beginning in, in verse 3 of chapter 6, Paul has, has entered into the final portion of his letter, and he returns once more in these verses to discuss the false teachers that were harming the church at Ephesus. And he reminds Timothy of the dangers he faces in combating them. And specifically, he draws out a heretofore unmentioned, though unsurprising, quality that is to be found in these men. Their love of money. Paul's aim in these eight verses is to demonstrate the danger of such love and to offer a cure for it. So let's read these verses, outline the sermon, and get to work. He had uh, transitioning really from uh, the end of verse 2. He says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So I'd like you to notice three things with me from these verses this morning. First, it, first in verses 3 through 5, we will see uh, Paul outline one last time the sickly nature of these false teachers. Along with its effect on others. So he'll outline the sickly nature of these false teachers along with the effect their sickness has on others. Second, in verses 6 through 8, we will see Paul's prescripted remedy for the disease that they carry. And third, in verses 9 and 10, we will see the danger that awaits those who ultimately reject the cure. So look with me in the first place, verses 3 through 5, where we see Paul add to his list of characteristics of the false teachers at Ephesus. Uh, if, if you've not been here with us as we've walked our way through 1 Timothy, uh, a, a quick summary and recap of what Paul has said about these men so far will be helpful to you here. Uh, first, back all the way back in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he describes the false teachers as heterodox teachers who devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And this, these devotions that they have produce speculation rather than the stewardship that is from God by faith. He says in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1 that these men with corrupt hearts, bad consciences, and insincere faith wander off into vain and pointless discussions about God's law in particular, and they make very confident assertions about it despite having no true understanding of what they are saying. Paul ends chapter 1 with a warning that these men were misusing the law and the gospel and it was shipwrecking the faith of many. Then in chapter 4, we see another facet of their false teaching described. He says they're not just devoted to myths and endless genealogies, but at the heart of it, they are are devoted to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. And he, he, he bears out a little bit further what, what this meant. And it meant that they, they required abstinence from certain foods and they forbid marriage. And so they were very ascetic. They, they taught a, a severity to the body, which we saw back in chapter 5, even led Timothy to, to refuse to, to drink wine despite its medicinal effects on him. It's help to him and his stomach problems. So they're legal-hearted ascetics devoted to endless genealogies and evil spirits. And they shipwreck the faith of others. What do we learn about them from our verses today? Well, two things, essentially. We learn that they are, they are quite sick themselves. And they are infecting others with their spiritually diseased lives. And it all revolves around their love of money. So first, how are they sick? Well, extremely. In verse 3, Paul describes those who teach a different doctrine, 
different than that which Paul had given to Timothy in the church at Ephesus. Uh, you could see a lot of that laid out in the book Ephesians. Uh, and different than what Paul has been laying out thus far in First Timothy. Over and over again, he calls on Timothy to teach and urge these things, to command these things, to, to teach, teach, teach. And so these men are teaching different doctrine. He says their different doctrine doesn't agree with the sound or, or healthy words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nor does it agree with the teaching that accords with godliness. Paul is painting here for Timothy and for us a picture of what disease in the church looks like. He, uh, you could say that he likens these men to cancerous tumors that need to be excised from the body of Christ at Ephesus. He says the, those who forsake the healthy words of Jesus are spiritually sick and they infect others. And as we'll see end up dead. So what has this departure from the healthy words of Jesus produced in the life of the men themselves? Paul says they are conceited. He says even, he says, even though they understand nothing, they have an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone who was insistent on arguing with you, despite it was very clear they did not have any idea what they were talking about? You no, know, at, at some point you just want to say, oh, honey, man, you really, it's okay. Just stop. But they keep going. They're going to fight. They're going to argue. They want to stir up controversy even though they don't know what they're talking about. He says they're puffed up with conceit. Right? What a picture. You imagine his head is ballooned up four or five, six, seven times bigger than it's a normal size. He can't fit through the door. They have to hire contractors to carve out. You know, we're going to get Rob to come in here and make bigger door frames or whatever so he can get inside the building. Every time he opens his mouth, hot air just bellows out into the room. And it's just laughable if it weren't so destructive. But what what effect does this pride, this quarreling, have on other people? He says their, their their love of controversy, what does it produce? It produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are deprived of mind and they are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That really is what is so awful about false teaching and false doctrine. It, It does not just affect the person who holds it, but it affects those who listen to him. Or better, it infects them, those who follow him. You know, as Reformed Baptists, we're often described as intellectual truth lovers who are people neglectors. I think there are two things that we should probably say about that claim. First, to our shame, it's often true. But Paul would argue that loving and holding to the truth should actually serve, not hinder, our relationships with people. If we allow our love of the truth 
to diminish our love of others, we don't understand the relationship between teaching and people. The reality is that the healthier our doctrine and our commitment to live according to what we teach, the healthier our relationships should and must be. So there's friction, there's slander, there's evil suspicions, looking around at everyone, always assuming the worst. And this amounts, you know, to these three descriptive words that we see there at the end of verse 5. He says that they are depraved of mind, deprived of the truth, and they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. They're thinking is skewed. They wander from the truth and they arrive at a deadly conclusion. Godliness, Christian, is useful only insofar as it pads your pockets. What a baleful state in which to find oneself. What a sorrowful effect on those for whom shepherds are supposed to care. Now it should be noted here, this idea of gain, imagining godliness as a means of gain. Paul is not merely rejecting or objecting to an obsession with obscene wealth. He's talking about something much more subtle. One commentator writes, wherever people think that the gospel message is primarily about better quality of life, personal well-being, or gain as measured in a materialist human consumer society, they run afoul of Paul's strictures here. Paul is not just condemning, right, obscene wealth, just what you probably automatically think of, the TV preachers you think of, um, you know, selling prayer cloths for, you know, $2,000 or whatever. He's talking about Something much more subtle that we need to be very careful of, especially as 21st century Westerners and and affluent, the affluent West. Paul's warning against the diseased heretics at Ephesus and infectious influence they have in others then is, is seen in these verses. Well, let's shift then to a second point where we, where we ask, well, what is his prescripted remedy then? What is the cure if this, uh, this false teaching, false doctrine that, that leads people to imagine that godliness is a means to gain, if that's the problem, what's the, the cure? Well, we see in verses 6 through 8, Paul's offering of a remedy to this spreading contagion at Ephesus. He says, godliness isn't to be thought of as a means of financial gain, but it is gain itself. It is, in fact, great gain. Seeing godliness as a means to financial or perhaps even in some context social gain, right? That's probably less true here in America today than it would have been 20 or 30 years ago or or 40, 50, 60 years ago. Being a Christian in America at one point, especially the South, was the place to be. That's maybe not so true now, but there was a time when one might see godliness, the profession of godliness at least, as a means of some type of social gain. 
Paul says, seeing it this way is abominable, and it exchanges something transcendent and glorious for something mundane. Godliness, he says, is gain itself. But that raises the question, how can, God, how can godliness be gain? How, how does Paul say that godliness is, in fact, gain? Well, he says godliness, actual godliness, is marked by contentment. The word translated contentment here refers to an inner sense of being complete. Having all that one needs. Right? Now, this for Paul, we need to be very clear, is not self-sufficiency. We see this very clearly in his letter to the Philippians. For him, it was only what? In Christ that he was complete. For Paul, to live was Christ. That's 121. All was to be counted lost. Why? So that he might gain Christ. That's chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. In chapter 4, we see from Paul in Philippians there that Christ was the secret to his having learned how to abound and how to be brought low. This is the contentment that marks godliness for Paul, which was great gain. And it's contrasted with the financially beneficial godliness of the false teachers. It is a godliness marked by contentment. Godliness, to be of value, is, it needs to be marked by a contentment which rests in Christ and therefore is at peace in a broken and chaotic world. You see, the false teachers thought that godliness was, it, it was a lucrative business, right? You can hear them saying, God wants me to be happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. By faith, I can move mountains of cash into my bank account. And if I just believed harder, if you just lived better, God will pour out the blessings upon you. Now, if you were reading that last sentence, the word blessings there, you'd, find, you'd appreciate it a lot more because instead of S's, I wrote dollar signs. Right? It's, it's about what can I get out of Jesus? What can I get out of a profession of godliness? That's the problem, but Paul explains further in addressing this, in, in addressing, uh, offering a remedy, he says... Contentment and godliness must attend one another. And we see this in verses 7 and 8. He says, because we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. The emptiness of our entrance into the world is mirrored by the emptiness of our exit from it. As, we, as it concerns material goods. We read this in Ecclesiastes 5.14. Just as he came out from his mother's womb naked, he will return to go as he came. And he will not take anything from this toil that may go in his hand. 
point. Contentment looks like remembering that we came into the world with nothing, not even clothes on your back, and whatever earthly riches and treasures you can procure for yourself while you live, they are not going with you when you die. Birth and death together remind us we have a very unstable relationship with the material world. Perhaps Paul has in mind here Jesus' words in Luke 12. It's very possible. We, we, we saw in chapter 5 that he, he quotes from Luke's gospel. So maybe he has Jesus' words in Luke 12 here where Jesus can, he, he speaks concerning the miserly fool who spent his wealth doing what? Right? Building bigger and bigger and bigger barns. Jesus says, hey man, tonight your soul is going to be required of you. Then whose will all your possessions be? That parable that he tells serves to underscore this point that Jesus says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Right? Paul makes this point in verse 8 that we read just a moment ago. It says, if we had food and clothing, we will be content. Apparently, in Paul's mind, you don't need shelter. You don't even need a roof over your head to be content. Perhaps that presses the point too far, though. Might it be better to say that what Paul is getting at here is that if you have the basic necessities of your life provided for you, you can be content. Right? So, we might say food, clothing, and, uh, you know, air conditioning, is that? I don't know. Paul didn't live in Savannah, but... If you have what you need to survive, Paul says you can be content... How? Why? Paul, that doesn't sound right. It's because you have something much better than anything this world can afford. For Paul, Christ was so much for him that as long as he had what was necessary to survive, he could be content. You can Thrive with contentment in the Lord Jesus, even if all you have is bread and water. Fundamentally, at the bottom of all of this, we can be content because we can be content when we recognize the fact that God Himself is and must be our greatest treasure. That can be the only possible explanation for what Paul says here. Be content with what you have in this life, even if it's just barely keeping you out of the grave, because, well, one, you can't take any of it with you, no matter how much you have. And two, because what you do have, what you do have and can never be taken away from you, is of infinite value. It is, in fact, great gain. 
The only reason we can be content with such scarcity in this life is because what we have now, the the stuff we have now, the real stuff that we have now and will enjoy later to the full is something that surpasses the wealth of the nations. In other words, I can go hungry, suffer want, suffer cold, heat, aches, pains, and sorrow because I have something that cannot be taken away by this temporary world. Or as Jesus says, that cannot be destroyed by moth, rust, or thief. Or as Paul says in Romans 8, cannot be taken away by anything else in all of creation. So here's the question. Here's a question for you. Have you obtained the gain of which Paul speaks here? Have you, like Paul, like he expresses elsewhere, come to know how to abound and how to be brought low? Do you know how to be full and how to be empty? Do you know how to be content in whatever brutal circumstances you might find yourself Because your heart is enraptured by God Himself who is your portion now and forever. There is a treasure you can take with you when you die. And there is only one treasure you can take with you when you die. And that is communion with the triune God. So that's the sickness of the false teachers and their infection of others. That's the remedy for those infected by their teaching. Let's look in the third place here to Paul's warning of the ultimate dangers that lurk for those who refuse to take the good medicine of godliness marked by contentment in Christ. We see this in verses 9 and 10. He says that those who rather than contenting themselves with Christ... Instead, they desire to be rich. They fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, which in the end lead to ruin and destruction. So that's the contrast, brothers and sisters. He says, on the one hand, you can set your heart on God Himself and be content with the life that He gives you here on earth knowing that when you die, you will receive an eternity of blessing and honor as you live with and for and upon God and with His people. Or on the other hand, you can imagine that godliness is a means of some type of gain, financial gain, social gain, some way to become wealthy and however you might define that. He says, but remember, riches are the cheese on the trap which is set and ready to spring to life and break your neck when you get too close. Now, verse 10, we should note, is often misquoted and therefore misapplied. How's it often, how's it usually quoted, right? Money is the root of what? All evil. That's not actually what Paul says, is it? What Paul says is that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. That should still alarm us, though. If, you know, it's not the same thing as saying money itself is the root of all evil, 
Right? If, if money is the root of all evil, then every Christian uh, should get ev- everything away, work for free, and never accept payment uh, of any kind again forever. Right? But, media, but money is just a medium of, of exchange. It's a way of trading goods and services easier uh, in a less cumbersome way than it, it was under the bartering system. So it's not the, the, the paper in your wallet or the, the numbers on the screen. What Paul's referring to when he talks about money here is, is the wealth that it buys. But even the wealth that buys isn't the root of all evil. But it is the love of that that produces all kinds of evils in us. How? It's because when we have set our affections on riches, wealth, prosperity, we, we have in us a growing sense of self-sufficiency. Right? The poor man is tempted to steal so that he might eat to live another day. But what is the rich man tempted to do or to think? Even more sadly, he's tempted, he's tempted to forget God altogether. Have you noticed that in your own life? Have you ever been strapped financially and noticed that you found yourself praying a lot? A lot more than regular? Were you painfully aware of your dependence upon God because you didn't know for sure if you were going to make ends meet? What about the other times when things were going a bit more smoothly? You were caught up on your bills... You had a little extra to spend or go on, save for a vacation. Right? If you really think about it, wasn't it easier to go from day to day without quite as much urgency in your praying? That's why Jesus says it's easier to pass for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. To get into heaven... To get to heaven requires a humble admission of my complete insufficiency to save myself. Self-sufficiency is a corrupting evil that the Christian must strive to mortify every single day. And the truth is that riches make it hard to remember that we are totally and completely needy creatures who cannot move the needle an inch to save or protect ourselves from the wrath of God or the temptations of the devil. People have done all kinds of things because they love wealth. In the pursuit of wealth, people have done all kinds of things to themselves, to their families, to their neighbors, to total and complete strangers. Men, women, and children. No one escapes the harm that can be done in the pursuit of the love of money. And Paul says here that it is this craving for wealth that have led some to wander away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. So we should ask ourselves this question. Ask yourself, are you prepared to wander away from the faith in your pursuit of wealth and prosperity? Now I bet most Probably all of us would say no. But remember, this is subtle. 
No one sets out and says, yeah, I'm going to wander away from the faith. It just happens because you're not careful. So we need to be careful, for that is exactly the danger we face in a society like ours that offers wealth and riches that Paul could never have dreamed of. The wealthiest people for most of human history could not imagine the wealth that all of us in this room enjoy today. The resources, the pleasures, the prosperity that the average American enjoys today would blow the minds of almost everyone that's lived through the history of the world. Now, of course, I do not mean to imply any kind of false guilt or to encourage you all to sell every possession that you have and become poor. But that is a danger that we face to love our wealth. What does it mean to love money? Well, it means to find it to be your source of refuge, safety, and delight. What motivates your decisions on a daily or weekly basis? Is it love for God? Is it love for money? Do you see religion and the pursuit of godliness as a means to acquire greater wealth and prosperity? Have you fallen prey to the stalking horse? You know, it's hard for many to see this, but false teachers who teach under the cloak of Jesus' name or a sham religion, however sincerely presented, they are stalking you, says one helpful author. If this is the case in which you find yourself, you may only be moments away from hearing the click of the hammer and then, boom, it will be too late. For the hunter's bullet shall pierce you and you will find yourself, as Jesus says of the rich fool, giving an account of your life and all of your barns will be left to someone else. For you do not know if your very soul will be required of you tonight. The brevity of life and the, sharp, the sharpness of, of its end has been sent. We've been sent a reminder of that here at Redeemer Baptist Church this week. As I mentioned earlier, the, the beginning of the service, tomorrow evening, we will hold a viewing and funeral services for our dear sister, Wendy Reef. While Wendy has, had been sick for a while, we, we're still struck by how sudden her death came upon us. Two weeks ago, I made a visit to her in the hospital. She was tired, but could talk with me just fine. She mostly just was trying to get the doctors to let her her go. Let her go home. There wasn't a a hint of complaining in her voice, though. But then this past Monday, she could barely speak. Then on Thursday night at 9.30 p.m., she passed away. Wendy knew what was of ultimate value. And she clung tenaciously to the Lord through all of her trials and suffering. With her health, especially in the past few weeks, but the past several years, she bore her anguish in faith. Wendy had no sham religion. She had the real thing. 
And on Thursday night, she learned better than any of us can presently know what great gain godliness with contentment really is. And I pray for each of us that we would, we would not look to the things of earth to provide ultimate happiness, security, or comfort. Those things indeed do await the people of God. Wendy's got happiness, security, and comfort like never before. So, but for us, the ultimate sense, they are yet to come. But we can now, like Wendy did, we can experience them in part. But it, should all, it shall only be when we cross the river that we shall have them in full, like she does now. So I pray for all of us that we would not be caught in the snare of the hunter, but that we would entrust ourselves to God, loving Him more than all things, to find safety and security and hope for eternity. Amen.